1: Hello. Um, Sometimes when we hear a topic for a show, an idea for a show, it takes us days, weeks to talk about it, figure out whether we would really want to do it. In the case of today's show, it took us about two seconds the minute we heard about this. Uh, We wanted to do this show. The Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services is sponsoring the kickoff tonight of the Connecticut Hearing Voices Network. That'll be at Real Artways in Hartford. It'll be part of uh, International Hearing Voices Network. That's a network of support groups for people who hear voices Uh, and sometimes see visions and have other unusual perceptions. There's going to be a reception tonight. We'll tell you about that. Um, But this really caught our interest uh, that, in fact, there are people who hear voices who do not believe that that means that they need medication, people who hear voices who believe that, that experience of hearing voices can be folded into a more or less normal existence. Uh, we want to learn a lot more about that, so let me just tell you who's here today. Uh, Peter Bullimore is here with us. He is a voice hearer, and he's, as he says, proud. Uh, he owns a, tra- a training consultant agency, Asylum Associates, and is a founding uh, member of the Paranoia Network in England. Um, Lisa Forrestall is a counselor at Western Mass Learning Recovery Community. Dr. Ravine Mahendru is a psychiatrist at the Institute of Living uh, at Hartford Hospital, an assistant medical director of adult services later on in the show um, because, you know, a big part of this uh, one of the places this comes up a lot, obviously, is in religious experience. So uh, later on in the show, Janet Ruffing who's a Sister of Mercy and a professor in the practice of spirituality and ministerial leadership at Yale Divinity School, uh, will be joining us from the studios down at Yale. But first of all, uh, we want to kind of just lay out the groundwork uh, of what, we're, uh, what, what it is that we're talking about here. So um, Peter Bullimore, I'll start with you. What does it mean to
2: say you hear voices? Uh, for me, it's a very personal experience. It differs from person to person. But for me, my voices are a reminder of things in my life that I needed to address. They're a part of me. Uh, they're emotions that became suppressed when I was a young child through childhood sexual abuse and neglect that became overwhelming. So quite often when they talk about negative things, it's very difficult to hear. But often what we're doing is they were talking about areas of my life that I needed to deal with unless I dealt with them. Uh, I couldn't recover, and all medication did was suppress those emotions. So my recovery was uh, disabled by about ten years.
1: So I, I just want to sort of um, pin this down a, a little bit more. So, for example, do you hear voices every day?
2: Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. Yes. All right.
1: And and so and they are speaking words, right? They are saying discernible words and
3: sentences. Yes.
1: So and and what are the kinds of words that they say? I mean, are they just? Is it a kind of a running commentary on? Uh, on what your daily life is, or is it, is it very separate from what's going on? In, in
2: it's, it's really variable. Uh, initially, they'd talk about the, the abuse that I suffered. Mm-hmm. Uh, my abuse finished when I was 13 years of age, and my primary abusers were female. So my body was responding to abuse. So they would say it was my fault. They'd call me a sex case, a paedophile. Uh, that's how they made me feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I looked at it later in life with the help of the Hearing Voices movement. They're actually the metaphors. They're talking about areas of my life that I haven't dealt with. Um, we talk about voices being messengers that bring awful messages, but we say at times, "Don't shoot the messenger; they've got something important to say." Uh, currently, the main voice will often call me a murderer. Um, that's about guilt, about the death of my mother and my son that I haven't dealt with. Uh, they're reminding me that I have to go there eventually to deal with it. So, although the messages may sound very difficult, when you look at the context of the person's journey, they start to make sense.
1: So, so they're they're talking to you then about sort of major existential issues in your life as opposed to, I mean, were they talking to you today about how you're going to go on a radio show and and how that's going to be? uh, Or is it more these other kinds
2: of sort of historic and and massive issues in your life? Well, to be honest with you, I've not listened to them today because, uh, you know, I'm coming onto this radio show and what they've got to say is currently important. You know, your listeners and yourself is more important. So I pushed them to the background so I can focus on what I need to be able to do.
1: And you can do that. You actually have sort of a, a, the equivalent of a volume control? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and how, how long did it take you to develop that?
2: Um, I started to do that when I, when I got out of services and people asked me about my narrative rather than just telling me I was mentally ill and I got schizophrenia. Uh, and nobody talked about the voices. And I changed the relationship with them. You know, we have to remember it, to take, make, it takes two people to maintain a conflict. Sometimes you've got to listen to the other person's point of view.
1: Now, when you say it takes two places, people to maintain a conflict...
2: Ultimately, this is you, right? I mean, the, the, the voices
1: are you. They're not some extraneous source.
2: I don't believe so. And I, I think there are areas in my life that I hadn't dealt with, and uh, the voices reminded me of that. And by just arguing against them and fighting all the time, wasn't going anywhere. I had to look to the real meaning of the voices and reform the relationship with them.
1: When I, you when you say voices, do is it um, – I'm trying to just imagine the auditory experience of this. So is it um, – Uh, voices that seem assignable to specific personalities? Is it just a cacophony of voices, each one kind of different from the other? It's
2: different for me. I I hear three externally through my right ear, and now they were the people that abused me as a child. I hear the voice of my dead mother, who's been dead for quite a long time now, and she makes very accurate accurate predictions within my life. Uh, And I hear another voice, which I think is my creative side that got crushed through childhood experiences, and that voice was very helpful. It helped me write a children's book. But when the book got published, the voice disappeared.
1: Hmm. Um, the, our, our other authors have had that experience, too. I think Philip K. Dick, uh, among them, who heard a specific female voice for a lot. Of, I think starting in his teenage years and going into his writing career, Philip K. Dick, who probably is the most per words written movie adapted author in the history of at least the English language anyway. But he, he some of his creativity and you hear this over and over again, whether it's him or Robert Schumann, who was having a considerably less uh, pleasant experience
2: that, that for creative people often they do hear voices. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I couldn't have wrote the book without the voice.
1: Um, Lisa, I want to uh, hear about you. Is uh, everything that Peter describing very familiar to you or are you having um, a very specifically different experience?
4: Um, my, my experience is quite different, um, although the commonality with, with Peter is what really what hearing voices is so important to me. Um, I've had the same three voices for as long as I can remember, Um, and I consider them my companions. Uh, They're very individual voices. They uh, are participatory, I guess is the best term for it. And um, two of them stayed young, uh, and one grew up with me. The the two young ones are very playful, and they keep me in touch with my playfulness. And uh, the one that grew up with me is... My consult, he he um, advises me and uh, keeps me straight, I think. Um, hearing voices was one of the first ways that I realized that I'm actually in the majority of people who hear voices and don't feel as though they need um, psychiatric support around it. So um, my voices and I had a pact very young when we started getting negative messages from other um, people that that our experience was not appreciated um we made a pact to not talk about it so part of the nervousness uh, other than being on the radio is is that we uh readdressed that pact only about 4 years ago for the purposes of really getting out there with hearing voices network and and letting people know that it, we are not alone and that Um, being together and hearing one another's experiences and what that is for us is part of what makes us strong and figure out how to tell our stories.
1: So I just want to make sure I understand that. In order to decide to go public about your own experience of hearing voices, you had to more or less call a meeting of you and your voices?
4: Oh, we, we definitely had a conversation, and the vote was not unanimous. It was not unanimous. <laughs> no. There was a voice who didn't want to do this. Um, the girls did not want to do this. Yeah. No. So
1: you're more than just a tiebreaker then, it sounds like.
4: It's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. 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 But, and, yeah, it's I get the final vote.
1: <laughs> and And so you're... Your experience, the experience that you're describing is, I think, less—it sounds to me, anyway, less harrowing in some ways than Peter's early experiences with people calling a murderer and, and things like that. Uh, and I guess uh, those experiences aren't entirely over, at least in that way, uh, all the time. But this isn't—that's not what's happening to you. You're, you. you're you're describing a more companionable relationship.
4: Yeah. I mean, we've definitely had arguments and all, but um, no, I haven't had— Voices that, that, would, um, that I've never ever felt like I needed help with. Mm. Um, we've had fallings outs and, you know, different squabbles and such. Um, but they've always been with me, so I've never been particularly startled by what they've had to say or, or felt as though um, I couldn't go about my daily activities. It, it never has really gotten in the way, which is not to say it hasn't been a very different experience than people that don't identify as voice hearers.
1: And, and are you, you know, Peter sort of talks a little bit about the genesis of this, you know uh, how this seems to stem or have something to do uh, stem from or have something to do with abuse in his childhood um, Is that the case for you? do you understand anyway or or think you understand where this comes from or why you're having this experience?
4: yeah, I think maybe I alluded to that just in the introduction of what what um my voices and I are you know we're companions um and I could probably explain that in a couple different frameworks. Um, the, the A medical framework doesn't work for, at all for me at all. Um, a trauma framework does to an extent, but I don't feel as though my voices are a creation of my experience or an extrapolation of my experience. They, they truly are separate souls that I hear and other people don't, just as you're a separate soul that everybody else is hearing along with me
1: um so it, so it sounds almost like you're not really especially interested in some kind of clinical explanation on what this is all about
4: i i'm actually rather i get a little bit upset about that yeah. actually <laughs> it just feels like it gets in the way from us understanding our experiences
1: and you're not interested in changing or not having these voices right
4: I have never once considered not having my voices and trying to be rid of them.
1: How about you, Peter? If I could give you a pill that's starting tomorrow, you just never hear these voices again. Yes, no? No, I'd be devastated not to hear my voices. Really? Yeah. And, and you know, uh, last question for you, Lisa, before we move on. I want to hear um, uh, from our third guest here. But... Um One of the things that you cited, and I'm not not sure where this number comes from, but I came across it several times in the reading for the show that the two-thirds of the people who hear voices have not sought medical attention, do not think they need medical attention. uh, That's the number you're alluding to anyway, right? Yeah,
4: yeah.
1: Yeah. And do we know where that comes from or where that –
4: Actually, it came from a talk show like this one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it has Um, to be true. And and
4: then actually a lot of research that – was compelled by that. Um, but it was a talk show, um, Donahue or Oprah esque, mm-hmm. um, where there was a call in center afterwards and a request from a psychiatrist and, and his partner a patient trying to figure out what voice hearing was to have a bunch of people call in and, and identify themselves um, as voice hearers. That call, those calls were followed up with, with questions about what their experience was for them. And it was the first time psychiatry really had a window to the people that are not seeking psychiatric help. And two-thirds of the callers um, didn't feel as though uh, voices were presenting any sort of struggle in their lives.
1: So, uh, Raveen Mahendru, a lot of clinicians who might be sitting in the chair that you're sitting in right now might see this. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to see this, obviously. Good. But, I mean, if you're going to look, just look at the DSM-5, a person's having auditory hallucinations. Uh, if you're going to just diagnose that way, boom, you're, you're automatically into a certain area, right?
3: Well, let, let me go back a little uh, before I answer that question. Yeah. So, firstly, we are agreeing this is a hallucination. Mm. So, if this is a hallucination, one symptom does not make a diagnosis, that, they, they may not be do you let me just uh, i don't mean to
2: right. uh, do you agree it's a hallucination is that a word that you would use no i wouldn't i'd call it i actually hear voice. it's not an hallucination it's real to me and i think to say it's an hallucination actually dismisses the person's belief system
1: right how about you hallucination
4: uh, uh absolutely not okay okay just just making but,
1: sure we don't agree all right <laughs> yes yes but, but but
3: let me also but let me also define what i mean by hallucination it is the perception of a percept as if it were real mm. I am not denying that you are hearing the voices and that you're hearing them as real voices. That's my definition of a hallucination. That means that I don't appreciate whose voice it is, I don't appreciate the sound and the voice either, but I do appreciate that you're experiencing them. That would be the definition of a hallucination. Going back to what I was saying, which is that um, one symptom won't make a diagnosis, number one. Number two, over the course of decades in psychiatry, this is this is well known that, that a symptom will not diagnose anything. It has to be a conglomeration of symptoms occurring together. Um, to Lisa's point, um, my uh, reading of this literature indicates about 15% of the population reports having auditory hallucinations or auditory verbal uh, perceptions without actually having a psychiatric illness. Mm -hmm. Um, The psychiatric literature is actually becoming more cognizant of that and there's a lot of research going in because of the difference in the types of phenomena that you would see as would be associated with schizophrenia versus with no schizophrenia being evident. So What I'm also trying to imply there is that a person is hearing voices need not have schizophrenia Mm -hmm. or another psychiatric illness. We are talking independent of an illness. Um, And now the research that's being done is taking into account those uh, individuals who are having those kinds of phenomena and studying that both with different types of cognitive and uh, biological uh, testing.
1: Um, By the way, if people want to ask questions about this or make comments, 860-275-7266. This is our subject the whole way. So 860-275-7266. On the other hand, don't take that as a reason to wait too long. Um, So I like what you're saying, and uh, you could be my psychiatrist, uh, and I'd be quite happy. But, you know, I'm just wondering. um, But I am going to ask you now to speak Perhaps irresponsibly for the broader uh, profession, um, you know. If I walk into an emergency room or a clinic or even you know a, a pretty good psychiatric facility, and I say I'm hearing voices, Correct. what are the chances I'm going to get a Dr. Naveen Mahendrew who's going to sort of see that the way that you just explained it? And what are the chances I'm going to be diagnosed as psychotic or schizophrenic or blah 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 blah? You know.
3: All right, so. That's an interesting question. You um so if you were to walk in t- to just to show you some statistics on a given day in our ERs less than less than 5% of patients are actually admitted. They are evaluated and discharged from the ER itself. Some with a diagnosis, some with a pre-existing diagnosis, and some with well there's probably no problem here you need to go and do X, Y and Z. Um with regard to um, what would be the norm, the norm would again come to that, that the issue would be how it that symptom or symptom uh, syndrome is actually influencing the functioning of the person. If there is a gross impairment in reality testing, if there is a gross impairment in ability to look after oneself, that's the point at which we would suggest intervention. Now, even there, there's a there is a dichotomy. You can suggest intervention, the person may not accept it, and you may actually have to let them say, go. Then there's another aspect which would be that the gross impairment is so severe that they're inadvertently posing a threat to them, their own safety Without because of reality testing issues. At that point you may want to actually involuntarily hospitalize that. Now that would probably comprise less than one percent of uh, the admissions.
1: I want to ask uh, the 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 hearers how um, how how your experience has been with you're both in kind of a post psychiatric model now, right? It's kind of you've just you've worked out your own way of dealing with this, and and you've worked out your own understanding of this. But Peter, I'm assuming uh, that that was a long journey, and that you did in, interact with the clinical establishment. I'm assuming in in England rather than here. Uh,
2: how does it work? I mean, if you say you hear voices, what happens? Well, guys, just to pick on a couple of points that were said before, if you were 15% of the population hear voices, that's more common than asthma. Mm. 10% of the population have asthma. And um, when you use the word uh, syndrome, um, if you look at the re- recent work of Reed and Argyle, it shows that 90 to 92% of people receiving psychiatric care have had a traumatic life experience. That can mm. be many variables. So why don't we talk about reactions? Mm-hmm. rather than pathologising human behaviour. And for me, it, the problem was I spent 10 years in services. From what happened in childhood, dealing with it, owning a million-pound business, going into services. During a 10-year stay, no one, not one person ever asked me about my life. Mm-hmm. The most important question you've got to ask someone is, how have you got here?
3: Mm-hmm. That
2: is not bus, taxi or ambulance. What has happened in your life to bring you to services? Because if we don't ask that question, we go straight to diagnosis. And in our psychiatric care today... The average time it takes someone to disclose, if not asked, is 16 years. That's a long time out of someone's life. So we need to be asking about the person's journey, understand the narrative, understand the context of the voices. So for me, I lost 10 years of my life that could have been evaluated and worked so a lot, a lot earlier.
1: I want to make sure I'm idiomatically on point here. So when you say services, um, uh, that's, uh, is that you're saying in treatment. In, is yes. that what, that's what that yeah. means? Okay. Yeah. What's, what, yeah, What we would call in treatment. So, Lisa, I would just also want to say, I'm just also sort of wondering. I mean, here, I, idiom, no, not just experientially, if you listen to people, the way people talk about things like this, um, I'm not talking about the clinical establishment. I'm just talking about people. Um, Usually somebody who's hearing voices, uh, if you say tell people you're hearing voices, it's a lot of people just immediately their minds go to the idea. Well, she's crazy. Right. That's what crazy people hear voices. Right.
4: Absolutely. I mean, uh, the news outlets and media are really, really reinforcing um, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of uh, idea of what it is to, I don't know, live our lives out loud. Um, and that's, that's really concerning. Uh, definitely one of the reasons, well, the main reason why I chose not to talk about my voice hearing. Um, but then if, if you can actually have a conversation around it, um, and people realise that, you know, in many points of their lives, they could identify as voice hearers, that they too have had some experience that would, would, uh, would. N- that wouldn't have been heard by the person sitting next to them. Um, it makes it a much more approachable thing. So half half the battle is being able to talk about it from a human place um, rather than putting assumptions on what the experience can be for people.
1: How does it affect close interpersonal relationships? I mean I have enough trouble maintaining my close interpersonal relationship with neither one of us hearing voices besides each other's voices. I would imagine this is a challenge, you know? I mean, it, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or a marriage or whatever, you're, you're hearing something the other person's not hearing. You're having an experience if you're both sitting on the sofa, you're having different experiences. I, I guess you could sort of say that about all people, but mm-hmm. you're having a specifically different experience. Yeah.
4: I think, I think when, when I was choosing not to tell anybody about my voices, it was much more difficult than it is now. Because I'm transparent about it, somebody will just feel comfortable saying saying, did you just hear something that I didn't? And I can say yes or no and explain what it was for me. So being being out about it has been way more comfortable and less energy-sucking.
3: Yeah. May I add yeah, go ahead. something to what Peter said? I, and I, I think the other question that we want to ask is not only what's been the context, it's also why now. Why is it coming to our attention at this point? What has happened that has brought somebody to our attention again. I think that answers a lot of the type of intervention would then that would then be recommended or suggested, um, and we fail to ask that question quite a number of times. You're right about that. We were talking prior to this uh, program; the fragmentation starts there too.
1: Well, is, is some of it also? I don't know. I'm so unqualified to make the observation I'm about to make. But I feel as though more and more over the last five years even, you hear more conversations about neurodiversity, and I suppose psychodiversity could come uh-huh. into that too, that the idea that there isn't a locus, a single place you can put your finger on that's normal, and then a continuum that spreads out from there towards insanity, and, and that everybody can be, be placed along that continuum, that much it's a much more kind of sliding set of measurements. Well,
3: that's a philosophical question, though. It's a philosophical answer to that, too. There has to be a wide variety of uh, spectrum, Mm -hmm. Um, even from a very reductionist point of view of genetics. Uh, Once we know the human genome issue and we know how genes are acting with each other, the, the possibility is large, and hence the variety should be large also. Hence the spectrum of normalcy may be a little different than what we are used to. Um, but going back to one point that you had made earlier, which is that people find it odd when you tell somebody I'm hearing voices, and but they don't find it odd when you say I believe in aliens. You know, you can, They can talk about UFOs and stuff. It's easier to talk about that than to talk about, well, tell me more about your voices. Mm.
1: I, I talk to myself. I have elaborate conversations with myself. I'm, I don't think I'm hearing any voice I'm just talking to myself, but I mean, people who come upon me do, <laughs> doing this often have a reaction to that. I, to me, it's part of having been an only child um, and there was often nobody else to talk to. But I, I,
3: anyway, I, I can. not But I think everybody talks to themselves. To a certain extent. Certain to a certain degree. I yes.
1: maybe get a little bit more. Oh. I mean, I'm, I'm like the Charlie Rose show or something. I mean, okay. Anyway, um, but I'm not actually hearing a voice. Let me grab one call, yeah. then I want to take a break. I want to just uh, bring uh, Janet in for the religious part of this, and then we'll have a whole third segment. We can talk a little bit more about what we're talking about now. I could, This is like a four-hour show. I would mm-hmm. like to have a lot more time to talk about this. But here's Mark in East Hampton. Hi, Mark. Hi.
5: How are you doing, Colin? Thanks Fine. for having me on. Um, just, uh, I'll really try to quick tell my story. I know you guys to go to break. Um, I've been hearing voices my whole life. <clears throat> like your guest, I had the pact that we didn't tell anybody. This is the sole proprietor of a business. I did, was doing fine for many years. Got severely injured a few years ago. And while in the hospital on a lot of pain medicine, I kind of broke the pact. They had sent somebody from their psychiatry, psychiatry department to see me because I basically lost everything after the injury. Um, thought I was really depressed. Anyways, fast forward, had a lot of testing and stuff done, and now they're trying to tell me, um, I know there was childhood trauma, but now they're trying to diagnose me as disassociative identity disorder. They're telling me it's going to be years of therapy before I can even think about going to work again. It's kind of ridiculous. They seem to have gone off the edge here. And I'm wondering what your guests think
1: about all that. Well, I think Dr. Mahendru is not going to want to make a curbside diagnosis, but our other two guests might want to say something. So basically, just to, to recap quickly, you've been hearing voices pretty much all your life for, you know, for oh, yes. long, and, and but then you had this accident. That you made perhaps the mistake of telling somebody, some clinician or something, that you heard voices, and suddenly you're on some very different track in terms of treatment. I don't know. Either one of yeah. you want to?
2: Yeah, I think it's going back to what... Uh, we were saying about why Why now. I think yeah. it's an important question. Yeah. Uh, we know dissociative identity disorder can be, co- can, can be caused by a childhood trauma. When you had the, uh, was it a road track accident or something you had? Um, yeah, it, I
5: was a owner-operator of, owner of a truck and I fell off
2: it. Right. I, broke my back. I broke
5: my back. I was paralyzed right. for a while.
2: But what it does, it raises those uh, disempowering moments that happen when you were a child. So quite often we're back in that moment, so it's very difficult to understand the situation. We have something called infantism. So basically, it's a child that cannot, cannot cope. You're back to the age when the trauma started. And it's, it's a classic case of the, the resurfacing of the, of the past disempowerment. And actually, you don't have to be years in therapy. It needs to be working with the inner child and you can be out of there in a, lot, a lot quicker than what, what they say than it will be years.
1: You know, one thing you might, th- one thing you might think about doing, Mark, is uh, tonight is uh, this uh, kickoff of the Connecticut Hearing Voices Network. These these networks, uh, both of our guests uh, here are, are part of these networks, but these networks exist in other places. I guess now there's going to be one uh, here in Connecticut, the Connecticut Hearing Voices Network. If you could get over to Real Artways tonight, it looks like the, re- the event is from 5.30 to 9 p.m. Peter and Lisa are both going to be a uh, part of that. Uh, and so uh, at least you know you could sort of rub shoulders with uh, a lot of other people who are having the same experience. That might be worth doing. And, and Lisa, I assume, and I know this you don't live in Connecticut, but I assume this network stays around and it's there for people in Connecticut who are having that experience. Yeah,
4: around. that's really what we're trying to support here is the development of the Connecticut network. Um, but we also meet over the phone and Skype and Internet and really trying to encourage it all the way across the USA. And you can check out HearingVoicesUSA.org for more about that.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to grab a a quick break here. I do want to just address the religious component of this. And then we got a ton of calls from Don and Betty and uh, Valentina. Uh, We will get to those, too. I'm suddenly realizing that the whole experience of hearing voices is not that unlike uh, doing a talk radio show. For example, I hear voices counting me in and stuff like that that you guys are not hearing. Uh, all right, so. Um, uh, we- when we first started talking about doing the show, one of my first reactions was, I really want to talk about the religious part of this, because uh, even though we might in daily life talk about hearing voices, some people would talk about it as, as something that's very atypical. Um, one of the places that it seems accepted and understood and, and very much part of the discourse is within the world uh, of religion. So uh, joining us right now is Janet Ruffing, a sister of Mercy and a professor in the practice of spirituality and ministerial leadership at Yale Divinity School. Uh, so you've been listening to this conversation, uh, Janet Ruffing, and and obviously, uh, you know, your thoughts probably go a little bit towards some saints, right? Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena. These are people who, who heard voices.
6: Uh, yes, uh, my thoughts do go there. But I, uh, I'm fascinated by this topic because I actually did qualitative research years ago on contemporary people who uh, experienced what we called mystical locutions uh... which are uh... mystical experiences and they uh... people who have these experiences are mystified by them they're afraid to talk about them because hearing voices has been so pathologized and um... and the uh... effect of these voices that people hear are entirely positive um... so they're they're, they're not dissociate like dissociative phenomenon um, but it requires um, a belief that one is actually being in some kind of actual communication with God. And much to my surprise in this very small sample that I had interviewed, uh, a full half of the participants had had some kinds of hearing of voices.
1: You know, we talk about that, this also, I think, uh, uh, pastorally, we talk mm-hmm. about it. I mean, uh, when uh, somebody's—often if we're talking to, say, a young person whose parent has died or something like that, we might say, you can talk to her, you know, you can, and, mm-hmm. and, you, and she'll hear you and, and you may. I mean, it is sort of part of our understanding, right, that not everybody that we talk to is located physically, corporeally here on earth. Mm-hmm.
6: Yes, and that there's a, a kind, some kind of spirit existence beyond the present life. Um, so this part of the frame of reference it's also um in terms of most of the people that I actually interviewed the words they heard most of them they were like a single sentence that was illuminating, consoling, strengthening um and that changed them on the spot uh and they remembered it and lived out of that experience so uh so these auditory experiences are um, have the same kinds of effects that visions have for other people where there are no words, um, and they would never um, categorize them as hallucinatory because they uh, occurred rarely or once, you know, uh, and they were... Uh, convinced that that there was a communication going on between themselves and God or someone from the spiritual world, so in the mystical tradition that's technically called a locution, and uh, both Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross had uh, extensive teachings about when these kinds of words um, happened, which ones came, how to distinguish those that came from God and the effects they had on you, if that was the case, and when they came from some part of yourself or from some other entity or when this person was severely depressed and they were to be completely disregarded if that was the case. So even in the 16th century, they had psychiatric categories for this Uh, in that time of you know at that time of history Teresa of Avila felt very dependent on the words she heard because she had such limitations in terms of um, the books she had access to and uh, when all the books were burned that had given her help spiritually she was praying to God and said something like now what am I going to do everything that's ever helped me is gone and the and her voice was Jesus, who said, "Teresa, do not worry. I will be a living book to you."
1: Now, this is not confined to the experience of Catholic saints, right? I mean, we look at oh, George, no. we look it, at we look at George Fox, who's the founder oh, yeah. of the founder it, of the Quakers. It, it, he talks about an inner life, and Gandhi talks about mm-hmm. hearing something audible, a, a voice talking to him. This this happens yes. cuts across traditions, right?
6: It does. It's um, uh, there's a mystical version of it, but it's also related to prophecy. So, for instance, uh, Muhammad heard the whole Qur'an dictated to him.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty long voice. You right, know. that's a long, that's a that's long conversation. That's a pretty
6: powerful one. But then also in terms of prophecy uh, of the folks I particularly interviewed, a couple of them identified them as a prophetic word, distinguishing what's for the person who receives a communication and what's for some other community. So for one person, it was her, her Episcopal church community. For another one, it was her religious community. So a, a particular person becomes a vehicle for communicating that. And, of course, in the Jewish tradition, we have the uh, prophets of the Old Testament. So, uh, yes, so there, there's a prophetic form, and then there's this uh, mystical form.
1: You know, I want to just uh, turn it over to Dr. Mahendru for a second. One of the things we hear over and over again when we're uh, in studying Eric Erickson or somebody like that is cultural context is really important. And so what's a hallucination, what's a psychotic experience in one cultural context is a shamanic uh, experience, uh, a legitimate uh, communication. Uh, people who have those kinds of experience in other cultures are prized and are sometimes regarded as the wisest or the most Useful people in, in in their respective cultures. Culture cultural context has a lot to say about how we define an experience like this one.
3: Um, yes. Um, however, here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, give you an opinion which you may not be familiar with. Okay. Um, when we when I talk of culture, I, I, I talk more. I, I have worked in two different cultures: India and the U.S. Um, And I can tell you that I see the same phenomena in both cultures. In fact, I saw some in England. I was there for a little bit. Um, It's how we deal with it which is the main issue. Um, But what you're describing, for example, the religious, uh, we see it in India. We, We sometimes treat them as saints and sometimes treat them as madmen and then sometimes treat them as patients for the same phenomena. So I, I think it's independent of culture. I think what's what's important with regard to culture is the toleration, that the amount of people are ready to tolerate or are ready to ascribe some meaning to it. Um, um, I think in the West there is now less tolerance to this kind of situation, whereas in the East we may still actually do uh, more of the... Uh, acknowledging th- that, that this may be some supernatural uh, ability of the person. Um, I think that's the main issue with culture. At this, from my point of view, um, and, and 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 I know it doesn't go down well uh, with people who like to talk about cross-cultural issues, because I think a lot of this is is uh, biologically driven in the sense that we have the same biology across Earth. So for us to have similar phenomena. Uh, the culture really comes into play into how we tolerate it rather than saying that there are different phenomena in different cultures.
1: We're going to take a quick break. Uh, this is, i believe me, I could talk about this segment for an hour, but uh, we want to thank Janet Ruffing, Sister of Mercy and Professor uh, at Yale Divinity School. Uh, we're going to move on. We've got a lot of calls here. I want to come back uh, to uh, to our other guests, our hearers in the studio. You can call us 860 275 7266.
3: you hear what I hear? Swinging through the sky,
2: shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? A song
4: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jane Ashley and Greg Andrew Lischke. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anthony Hopkins. Katie Tularsky is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, videos, and more of everything, visit our great website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the fastest, deepest, hottest, and oldest creatures in the ocean. And now, back to Colin.
1: All right. So we're talking about hearing voices. Um, Our guests uh, include uh, Dr. Raveen Mahendru. You've been just hearing him speak. Uh, Also in studio with me, Peter Bullimore, a voice hearer, Lisa Forrestal, a voice hearer. Um, They've both been involved with these uh, networks uh, of people who are voice hearers. So I want to ask a little bit more about what that's like. Peter Bullimore, when you get a group together, a group of people who hear voices, and one thing we've already established is that everybody's voice hearing experience is probably a little bit different from everybody else's. It's an individualized thing. But but what happens if 5, 10, 15 uh, people who are voice hearers sit down together and talk? What do they talk about?
2: Well, initially, it's a very liberating experience. It breaks down the social isolation, that they're not alone with this experience. They'll talk about the content of the voices, what brought them to service, how we can help each other, support each other, exchange coping strategies. And just just it, basically, when we get into these support groups, it's a safe place where you can take off a mask that you've been wearing for years because within society, it's all not to tell people you hear voices. You meet people on psychiatric wards. They never talk about the experience because they want to get out of there. So in general, in our group, we, had, we actually had 21 there the other week. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a fantastic experience. People talked about what they saw as beliefs, uh, what saw as a spiritual context, what it saw as related to life events. But we looked at very much about problem solving. How can we move you on to the next stage and but basically respect your understanding of them?
1: Um, I'm also wondering, uh, Lisa, once again, when you get people together like this, you know you said that you had to pretty much call a meeting with your voices and and have a conversation about whether to go public at all whether to talk about this stuff i, I would imagine if not everybody's voices agree about whether to go to the meeting whether to talk to other people in in a network
4: um i suppose that's very individual for everybody yeah. um i think what's really interesting about our meetings is that they come from we we create a very non-judgmental place so the idea of normal and then a span of too abnormal just simply doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And it really offers an opportunity for people to come and, and share their story with their own language and with their own understanding. Um, and that's the only way you find out um, whether or not they've had to uh, uh, negotiate with their voices or not to get there.
1: All right. I want to uh, just—we've got a lot of calls here. I want to take a few of them. We're going to start with uh, Ken, who I think uh, is uh, is a clinician. Hi, Ken.
7: Yes. Hi, uh, Colin. Uh, Just a brief comment. I I first wanted to congratulate Peter and Lisa. How courageous it is to do a show like this. It was only a short time ago where people had to keep all this uh, behind closed doors and within themselves. So they already commented on the sense of isolation and loneliness that that generated. I think what they're appealing to us as psychiatrists, as I'm one for the state, is to hear my experience, to not invalidate it immediately so that also I not feel disempowered to listen and truly hear their voice first. Not the voices that they're hearing, but first to hear their voice and their understanding of what it is they're experiencing. That we have to consider the context in which They're experiencing their voices before we do any diagnosing at all so as to not to invalidate and disempower what people are experiencing.
1: You know, uh, Ken, I just want to ask a follow-up with you about this a little bit, too, and uh, it's sort of something we've touched upon a few times here. But listening uh, to these two guests, uh, one of the things that I'm thinking is, if I were in their shoes, if I heard voices, um, one of the questions I'd be asking myself and. Following today's conversation, I'd be asking it in a slightly different way is, should I ever deal with anybody like you? Maybe I should. It's almost like Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit, you know, that ultimately they decide they've got a different, better for them model than, than a standard clinical treatment model. But, you know, should I, should I go to a psychiatrist ever? Um, if there's a chance I'm going to be misunderstood to find the wrong way, there's going to be a, a, a file on me that says a certain set of things. I mean, you know, Dr. Mahendru is great. Can you sound great. But I, I feel like I'd be taking a big chance. Maybe I'd be better off coping with this in kind of a post-psychiatric way. What's your reaction to that? Is oh. that for Ken? it was for Ken, but I think you might have hung up, so oh, okay. you can answer it. What?
3: Well, so, so the point I, I think that i want to bring across is twofold number one is the fact that we're talking about two different types of situations in which this kind of a this kind of a phenomena is occurring one is where it's in the context of more global problems versus is is an isolated kind of a phenomena mm-hmm. i think i think going to a psychiatrist or going to a professional would be entertained because it may be disturbing somebody but it may actually also, create a situation where they may get a more if they are heard properly, like Peter says. Um, uh, create a situation where there is more reassuring uh, information that this may not be really an illness, but this, but just an isolated phenomenon. It may not be a persistent issue. I think the other thing that the second point is this: that people go to a mental health professional if they are feeling distress. If if there is And if they don't get the advice that they are looking for, they change or they stop going. So there is that uh, autonomy involved in that decision. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I I think the the person has to decide whether they want the help or not or whether this is a situation that requires help or not and hence end up going to the right person. yeah, yeah, jump in. Yeah, I was
4: yeah. hoping you would. Yeah. Um I think it's it's it, it's definitely there there's a lot more issues, I think, than than what you've just touched upon. Yeah. Not the least of which is when when you go to somebody who is is going to create a file about you, they're approaching you from a deficit based place. They're they're trying to figure out what is wrong with you. And in my experience, my personal experience, I didn't find that helpful. Um I was already coming from a deficit-based place. I already knew um, that I needed to be fixed, that I was broken. I had been getting those messages all my life. So that absolutely wasn't helpful to me. Um, And unfortunately, our culture, that's what it offers. Um, You're mentioning that we tend not to seek help because we know we we won't get the help. It's actually that we know we'll be filtered into a system that... um, will limit our options as we move forward. And so on average, people who start to feel any form of distress are waiting up to six years before they even touch base with a mental health system. Um, And that says something about providing options like Hearing Voices Network.
3: And which speaks to what I had mentioned earlier, that the the importance of culture has to do more with how we deal with the issue rather than how it is described. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to what you're saying, that... The the approach is more that okay, this is something that needs to be fixed, rather than an approach of what is going on and why are you sitting today here and talking to me.
1: Um, I want to grab a call or you just before we run. we have, this show is flying by here. Here's Lisa in Simsbury. Hi, Lisa.
0: Hey, how are you? Good. Um, I'm I'm going to have to uh, respectfully disagree with the the, the woman. Um, I'm I'm fr- Is her name Lisa? Lisa. Yeah. I should know that same name. Um, you know, I went into therapy for a completely different reason, and um after it, it, it had almost been three years, it turned out that I had you know clearly an ados- dissociative disorder, and it was only when I was you know losing time clearly I'd stopped drinking um And I was clearly losing time, and I would see myself as I was, I'm I'm trying to explain how the different voices and or people came out. Mm -hmm. It would be as if your uh, brain was on an axis, and it would turn, and it would turn drastically, or as my um, therapist would say to me, I would be hijacked. It's something. If I was in a situation that I put myself in that I shouldn't have been in, then one of my people would come out and take care of that situation.
1: You know, I, and I don't mean to cut you off, but we we're like really almost out of time on the show. It, it, I think we're getting back to what Dr. Mahendry said in the first place. Like, what what brought you into the psychiatrist's office? What you what brought you into therapy? What brought you to the clinic? Um, and it sounds like. Uh, some other stuff brought you there, whereas I think what you're talking about, Lisa in the studio, is if you're just hearing voices and that's pretty much it, or you know that's kind of a different thing, right
4: um actually, I was speaking very much from my own personal experience, yeah. so i I don't at all want to step on Lisa's experience and her understanding of what was helpful to her um but I definitely find that that strength based approaches are are more open and expansive than a uh, deficit-based categorization. Um, we're, you know, we're almost out of
1: time here I sort of don't, don't dare take another phone call so um, very quickly tonight Peter do you have a sense of what's going to go on tonight at Real Artways um, what the format's going to be is it just people meeting or will you be speaking I'm going to
2: do a bit of a presentation about the history of the Hearing Voices movement my personal journey into recovery but I think just to finish a bit too importance of to the power of the narrative mm-hmm. what brings people to services I, I take referrals from psychiatrists who can't work with them mm-hmm. and I listen to their narrative then I'm not interested in what they can't do I'm interested in their resilience and how they survived, and that's where we build from. You're still here, you're still alive. Let's use that as a positive rather than looking at the deficits and what you can't you can't achieve.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, very consistent. Yeah, in 15 Wh- seconds,
3: which is actually a, an old uh, prop, I mean, an, an old form of therapy in the sense Carl Rogers had talked about client-centered or person-centered, which was to build a person's strengths with empathy.
1: All right, so uh, if First of all, I'm really sorry to anybody who was online who I didn't get to. Uh, there were some people. Uh, but uh, if this is sort of you, if we're talking about you or somebody like you, you might think about going to Real Artways in Hartford. That's tonight from 530 to 9. Uh, you'll hear presentations. You'll be with other piece of people uh, who are hearers. Uh, and that might be a very interesting thing for you, maybe the first time you've done that. So thanks to everybody who helped out today. Thanks especially to Thank Betsy Kaplan who uh, pulled the show together for us. We'll be back tomorrow with, of course, as usual, a completely different thing.
3: Thank